episode, insert current number here, Macquarie Island in the early 50s. I'm home again, I've shuffled myself down to Point Cook foreshore, I'm sitting in the shade of a Casarina tree, I hope it comes up in the recording, they make the loveliest sighing sound in the, in the merest breeze. They're very restful to, to sit amongst or to fall asleep under. Most of the birds that you'll hear in this recording are superb blue wrens. The males are getting around in their blue plumage. Look at me, look at me, time to breed, look at me. And chasing each other and making noise to attract females. Spider just walking across the recorder. I love this spot. There's some students flying circuits out of Point Cook Air Base in Cessna 150s, but I won't let that interrupt me. <sighs> Time to hook into it. <clears throat> Seeing as the Heard Island update addressing Inari occupation to the end of Australian residence there served me so well. I thought I'd give the Macquarie Island winterers of the same period the same treatment, which will leave the field and my brain clear to recount the establishment of Mawson Station without lots of faffing about in the sub-Antarctic. Macquarie Island remains an Australian research outpost, so I'll have to deal with concurrent Antarctic and sub-Antarctic presences at some point. But this is the plan I've arrived at for now, and I'll deal with duality once I get Mawson Station's earliest days squared away in the narrative. As with lots of previous episodes, I'll do my best to name all the winterers. Summer voyages fell by the wayside a long time ago, and I suspect I won't be able to keep up with the winterers' names for much longer, as the various national programs grow larger. I'm a little sad about that, as this series is, in part, my way of honouring the people willing to leave hearth and home to explore, study and cope with Antarctica. But the resources available to me to account everyone in expeditions from outside Australia are scarce and I can't expect to hold on to what audience I've accumulated if the series begins to sound more like Genesis chapter 5 than iced coffee. So I think we're seeing the middle of the beginning of the end of even the attempt at comprehensive expedition lists. In his memoir of the era, Antarctic Odyssey, Phil Law notes that the 1948 and 1949 winter parties at Herder Island and Macquarie Island experienced problems with alcohol consumption. Several expeditions from these early days went south as moderate beer drinkers and returned as alcoholics. Violent drunken outbursts, drunks falling down in snowdrifts and nearly freezing to death, and in one case drunken pyromania, accompanied the gradual shift from casual to hard drinking through the course of a year in the south. Law instituted a policy ruling out hard liquor and he left it to the OICs to distribute their allocated beer and wine stocks as they saw fit. As Australia set a toehold in continental Antarctica, he began sending beer south in sugar and hops form to save space and weight and to minimise the labour associated with unloading the heavy and cumbersome crates brewers of the era sold beer in 
as the smallest wholesale unit, comprising two dozen long necks. He thought homebrew operations would help maintain morale through the year, as my alcohol-obsessed countrymen learnt to ferment the path out of their isolated and weather-beaten gourds. It barely takes two generations for something to become a tradition at home. It can take a single winter at an Antarctic station for a practice to establish as a hallowed tradition. In the 70 years since Australians began homebrew operations at Antarctic stations, that tradition took firm roots, prompting many prophecies of doom when the Australian Antarctic Division, no longer hampered by weight and offload concerns to the same extent as early Southern Ocean shipping arrangements dictated, banned homebrew on its facilities. As my daughter's friend Lachlan once pointed out quite poignantly, tradition is peer pressure from dead people and can be safely ignored on most fronts where it isn't standing in for a scientific understanding of hygiene, agriculture and animal husbandry. So homebrew at Australian stations ended two years ago. The wheels of the Australian program have been looking a bit wobbly in recent times, but those wobbles were caused by misogyny, funding cuts, poor management, and a measure once after cutting approach to ensuring the new icebreaker could fit between bridge piers as it headed up the Derwent River to bunker fuel. The prophesied homebound brew mediated doom has yet to visit itself on Australian Antarctic operations. As is often the case when type one doom prophecies show up, I suspect it was a bunch of male boomer and Gen X entitlement junkies whining that their accustomed levels of privilege were being interfered with by other people's rights and even more intransigent physical realities. As with my sarcasm levelled at Richard, Evelyn Bird for finding it hard to be a rich, white, middle-aged, cis-het male admiral in the middle of the 20th century, I say, boo-hoo, poor snowflakes, the world is being so unfair to you. Doesn't sound like a Cessna. Show yourself. Piper 28. Such a lovely spot. I wish you were here with me. Speaking to the Australian situation, because I've seen nations whose nationals can behave as adults in the presence of free booze at every table at lunch and dinner, if we cut booze out of our Antarctic stations entirely, I think the bulk of abuse at those stations would stop overnight in part because the set of people who can't operate without alcohol intersects with the set of people who use alcohol as an excuse for, or as a chemical lubricant toward, abuse, to the point the Venn diagram almost looks like a circle. And they account for the bulk of the set of people who consistently promise to quit going to Antarctica anytime anyone proposes changes to alcohol quotas. And in part because even people less prone to turn to alcohol as a cover for their abusive personality can become abusive when drunk. If it's okay to ask doctors to have their appendix removed before they land a slot in a program, it's okay to ask their colleagues to forego recreational intelligence hobbling and belligerence magnification. Macquarie Island, winter 1949. Arthur Gwynne as officer in charge and medical officer. 
Brian Robertson as meteorologist, with Les Bain and Bill Denham as med observers, Noel Haysom and Tom Mainfield as biologists, Ken Hall as cook, John Russell as diesel engineer, John Totten, Ross Sterrett and Alex Robb as radio operators, and Bob Dovers shows up in photographs with this team and is noted as taking part in excursions in several reports, but it's possible he was only present in the Austral summer during relief voyages. Duck, W's and pontoons served in landing the stores. Most expeditioners spent time at the Tottenham depots under George Smith, learning the system of numbers and colours applied to his standardised system of crates, balanced between portability and stackability, making the unload run smoothly, other than when the surf hit Buckles Bay hard, which it often did. Motorboats towed the pontoons to a buoy close inshore, where the crew transferred the tow to an endless line. A shore party worked that endless line to bring that pontoon the rest of the way. A tractor carried stores from the landing site, about half a kilometre away, to the station. Elephant seals occurred in their tens of thousands on Macquarie and Herder Island beaches during the first Anari seasons there, fueling Phil Law's speculations about restarting an oil industry to help fund Australia's expeditions. The oil extraction industry, both seal and penguin based, already came to an end after Tasmania refused to issue further licences, the last licences running out in 1923. But there was already economic reason to leave the seals alone in that people weren't turning much of a profit from them anymore. The digesters, rusty but repairable at that point, remained cold and silent. Of the seal species recorded on the islands in the 1940s and 1950s, only the elephant seals bred there. Arthur Gwynne reported small numbers, the highest recorded count being 174, of fur seals around the Macquarie Island coast during 1949. Not many, but enough to constitute a major shift in the species' fortunes in the four decades since the Australasian Antarctic expedition. In the time between Mawson's charges setting ashore in 1911 to when they departed in 1913, no member of the AAE saw a fur seal anywhere on Macquarie Island. The sealers they encountered reported that fur seals occasionally came ashore there, but their stay was invariably cut short by a man with a club and a very sharp knife. Fur seal morphological taxonomy is hard at the best of times, but mid-20th century, the systematics of the group was different to that which I grew up with. Gwynne admitted defeat in his attempts to pass out which species his twice-monthly surveys spotted, concentrating more on male-to-female ratios and attempting to place individuals into age cohorts based on size, simply noting all specimens as Arctocephalus fosterii, the New Zealand fur seal. Arriving after the known breeding period, and mostly comprising yearlings and older, Gwynne concluded the Macquarie Island animals originated from the breeding population on the Auckland Islands and used Macquarie as a convenient haul-out during annual hunting forays, generally departing the island a month or so after arriving. Leopard seals occurred more consistently throughout the year, with the largest numbers hauled out in winter months. Most of those spotted in the summer months appeared sickly. Solitary ashore as at sea the most sighted at once was nine on one beach, 
though spread out, rather than gathered in the manner of fur or elephant seals. Leopard seal pups were observed on several beaches, but mating was not. All local penguin species, royal, king, gentoo and southern rockhopper, were observed falling prey to leopard seals. Hooker's sea lions, now called New Zealand sea lions because of the negative connotations associated with the naturalist who sailed aboard the Erebus under James Clark Ross, also made occasional visits to the island's beaches, usually solitary males hauling out for a few days at a time, the one noted exception being Blackie. This individual stayed around Macquarie Island for several months at a time, switching the focus of its occupation from one beach to another as the local Gentoo penguin population grew accustomed to its hunting mode and gradually became harder to catch and eat. In their more usual haunts, sea lions eat fish, squid and crustacea, and Gwyn figured their efficiency in hunting gentoos would quickly see the bird population run to local extinction if a sea lion breeding population similar in density to that on Auckland Island established at Macquarie. Unlike leopard seals, which mostly catch penguins by ambushing them in the water, Hooker's sea lions were only ever observed catching the birds ashore. The sea lion would swim along a shoreline, spy hopping regularly until it spotted penguins leaving the water. The sea lion followed them up the beach and zeroed in on whichever moved the slowest, most often making their kill as the bird attempted to return to the water, exhausted by the chase and left on their belly at the shoreline by a receding wave. Hooker's sea lions were only ever observed eating gentoo penguins, likely because chasing them on sandy beaches was easier than chasing royal or king penguins on rocky shores. While never tagged, it's thought Blackie's presence recurred through several Anari winters. Biologist Noel Haysom carried out the first systematic intertidal survey of Macquarie Island, but most of the expected taxa common to equivalent temperate habitats, barnacles, ascidians, gastropods, mussels, oysters and serpulid polychaetes were absent. Instead, limpets, oligochaetes, non-serpulid polychaetes, amphipods, isopods and chitons made up the bulk of the species inhabiting five distinct littoral zones, roughly defined by algal clover. Green algae occurred in the high shore, reds in the intermediate zones and as an understory, and browns, dominated by the bull kelp Duvillia antarctica, dominated the low tide margin. That almost sounds like PC-21s or something.
you can get a look. Sounds like it's heading to Avalon. I know this isn't a visual medium, but I wish you could see my grin. I'm just so happy to be spending my Friday afternoon here. Knocking out my favourite hobby and enjoying some wildlife. Macquarie Island, winter 1950. Dick Cohen as officer in charge and radiophysicist. John Winsor as meteorologist with Reg Frost, Stan Dawson and Trevor Boyd as weather observers. Lithuanian-born Kostas Kalnanis as medical officer. Another European refugee whose medical qualifications weren't recognised in Australia until he took them to a place few Australian doctors wanted to go. Norm Fig as cook and Fred Dutch as assistant cook and in charge of stores. Neville Parsons and Keith Fenton as Cosray physicists. Bill Flower as geophysicist. Ward, Jack and Wally Nutt as radio operators. Cyril Park as diesel mechanic. Bill Taylor and Eric Shipp as biologists. Dick Cohen rubbed a number of the team under him up the wrong way. I can't find out what he did and so can't make my own assessment of whether he was a shit leader or white anted by manipulative arseholes below. Antarctic history features enough examples of the rot playing out in both directions that I hope you don't need me to cite examples for you at this point. Gotta get a spider now. Swallowed a goddamn fly. <sighs> but correspondence deriding his leadership passed uphill to Anari headquarters via the Royal Navy ship HMS Ostel Bay, which visited Macquarie Island in September 1950. In addition to the four letters of complaint addressed to Phil Law, the Ostel Bay also carried the cook, Norman Fig, northward. He showed up on the beach at Garden Cove in his best clothes, kit bag in hand, just as the frigate made ready to depart. Met observer Reg Frost asked, Where are you going, Norm? To which the cook replied simply, I'm going home. The master of the Ostel Bay was fine with that, so there wasn't much anyone could do about it beyond promoting Fred Dooch to cook. He reverted to Storman and assistant cook when the Discovery 2 made a visit and dropped off a replacement for Norm Fig, three months later. Who was it this time? Turboprop engines. Twin. Heading for Tassie. That's a dash eight. What a day. One of the wintering party got toasty to the point they'd sit atop wireless hill above the station buildings with a rifle and fire on any seal that showed itself. 
everyone else decided not to interfere, which is probably wise in the self-preservation sense, but a shit outcome for the seals, wearing the consequences of poor mental health among the monkeys, and not even going in the tripods or the cooking pots. Bill Taylor carried out the first comprehensive survey of Macquarie Island flora, identifying 35 native species in five formations, comprising grasslands, herb fields, feldmark, fen and bog. Only one woody plant numbered among those 35, a creeping caprosma. No plant grew much above waist high due to the strong winds. Three introduced species, brought south incidentally by sealers the previous century, showed up as established and self-sustaining coverage. The biologists also collected and identified the invertebrate fauna of the different vegetation formations, but the only terrestrial mammals on the island comprised introductions. Deliberate, in the case of rabbits, brought south as a self-sustaining source of meat for the sealers, and incidental or accidental in the form of cats, rats and mice. Dogs were introduced at one point and ran amuck among the breeding colonies of birds and seals, but received no mention after Bellingshausen's visit in 1820. Starlings and weckers, a species of flightless rail from New Zealand, comprise the introduced bird life. Starlings eat insects and fruit, neither of which occur as plentiful on Macquarie Island, but weckers eat anything that fits in their fat beaks including several of my Indian running ducklings when I lived on the Otago Peninsula. Any bird's eggs will do for a hungry wecker breakfast, and if it's too big to steal and bugger off into the scrub with, they'll break it open and feed on the yolk in situ. And I hate the bastards. Rabbits infested about two-thirds of the island's upland habitats, and in many places removed all vegetative cover other than mosses. In the bogs, they even dug out and ate the roots of the plants when they finished consuming the leaves and stems. The feral cat population tracked with the rabbit population. The wild predators descended from ship's cats, finding the larger rodents easier and more rewarding to hunt than rats and mice. White rabbits were selected against hard and the black colour morph dominated the island population by the time Anari kicked off. Rats after eating their way through the populations of the smaller, non-marine birds, turned to largely vegetarian diets, eating the hearts out of the Macquarie Island cabbage plants. Mice ate the seeds of anything about to throw out to the next generation of vegetation. Discontent over Cohen's leadership reached ahead in a series of meetings at which biologist Eric Shipp received support as a potential replacement officer in charge. The winterers voted on the matter, but failed to get the unanimous support the mutineers sought, and the coup attempt died on the vine. In December, John Windsor developed abdominal pains starting in the centre and migrating to the right. If you were paying attention in episode 149, you'll recognise this as possibly indicating appendicitis, and so did Windsor. Doc Costos trained as an ear, nose and throat specialist and held little surgical experience and the medical instruments weren't bearing up well under the Macquarie Island dankness, showing much rust. These two factors made Windsor reluctant to report his symptoms. Instead, placing his bet on the expedition's Polars Francaise vessel, 
the Commandant Charcot, due to pass by Macquarie Island soon, and likely either to provide a more experienced surgeon with a better surgery, or a ride to somewhere with both. When the ship drew near, he reported sick. With the symptoms and signs indicating the appendix already burst, Dr. Kalnanis urged immediate surgery, but Windsor refused. He left his gambit too late. The Commandant Charcot couldn't divert in time to assist in any meaningful way because the rapidly worsening symptoms indicated death within 24 hours, if that. Windsor finally consented to go under Dr. Kalnanis' knife. In the meteorologist's abdomen, Dr. Kelnanis found the burst organ already spilled its pussy toxins throughout Windsor's viscera. He cleaned up as best he could, left a drain in place as he closed the incision, and applied lots of antibiotics and hope. Although the meteorologist's condition stabilised briefly, neither antibiotics or hope proved sufficient to stave off peritonitis and Windsor died on the 5th of January, 1951. His widow agreed to his burial on Macquarie Island, and his grave lies atop Wireless Hill. The diesel mechanic, Cyril Park, developed abdominal pains starting in the middle and migrating to the right. The Commandant Charcot collected him on its way north on the 12th of February. I can't find reference to what happened to him after that, but I can tell you, he never returned south with an Ari. It was at this point, the River Fitzroy, see episode 149, came into an Ari service to replace the disabled and paid off HMAS Labuan for relief voyages to Heard and Macquarie Islands, though it wasn't until May the 4th that it reached Buckles Bay. The Duck W cruise, under the leadership of Supply Officer Dick Thompson, experienced a lot of trouble while relieving the 1950 winterers in the short May days. One Duck W blew out to sea and required rescue, while another went aground while resupplying a refuge hut at Lusitania Bay and remained there, receiving a pounding from the swell and likely still there in the form of rusty fragments. Abandoning the vehicle in the surf stranded 11 expeditioners on the Lusitania Bay shore and they spent an uncomfortable and damp night crammed into the two and a half metre square refuge hut. Macquarie Island winter 1951. Keith Stibbs as officer in charge and meteorologist. Janice Jerrams as medical officer. Jim Wyatt as radio supervisor with Bill Storer and Ron Parsons as radio operators. Murray Weaver, Ted Tyndale and Ken Watson as med observers. Zeb Jeffrey as radio physicist. Hugh Oldham as geophysicist. Peter Ford and Bob Jacklin running the Cosray physics program. Earl Lindham and John Bunt as biologists. Les Liebknecht as cook with Arthur Bowers as assistant cook and storeman and Alan Gowart as Diesel, which is how diesel mechanics refer to themselves nowadays and how I'll refer to them throughout the rest of the series. Met observer Tyndale, while walking the beach at Hasselborough Bay, saw two Gentoo penguins emerge from the water, followed by a sea lion. The sea lion rocking-horsed its pursuit of the nearer bird in a 50-yard arc over the sand, 
before catching and dispatching its prey about 10 yards shy of Tyndale. Horrified, the Met Observer ran toward the bloody tableau and biffed the rock at the sea line. Hit upside the head with unexpected geology, the sea lion reared up and snarled at the upstart monkey, the penguin lying already dead before it. Tyndale heard a noise behind him and risked a glance seaward to find a second sea lion emerging from the water and charging toward him. I've not seen or heard of hookers working in tandem to hunt, but I wouldn't put it past them to be that smart and figured Tyndale was lucky to get away with nothing more than a horrible memory from the encounter. Perhaps the first sea lion was a female and the second a male out to master his beach, in which case Tyndale could count himself lucky to have gotten away with just a severe mauling. I hope he said, clever girl, before legging it. Ooh, much flies. Missed ya. Blackie showed up repeatedly throughout the 1951 winter as stay and is recorded hauling out among a number of sparring bull elephant seals, which ignored him, and giving a nip to an elephant seal wiener, at which the nearby mother reared up and gave chase, and the smaller pinniped beat the only retreat anyone ever saw him conceive. Macquarie Island, winter 1952. Jim McCarthy as officer in charge and meteorologist. Frank Suchek as medical officer. Fred Strocknetter as Cosray physicist, Peter McGregor as geophysicist, Rob Gurr as radio supervisor with Eric Macklin and Roy Arnell as radio operators, Bruce Pritchard and Laurie Brooks as Met observers, Gersh Major as radio physicist, Alf Riddell reprising his Heard Island role as carpenter, Frank Shannon as Dizo. Danny Sweetenson as cook, with Mike Taylor as assistant cook and storeman. No biologists that year. Boo. Gotcha. One less March fly. 1952 was the first year the Macquarie Island Winter Party featured wintering veterans, with Major, McCarthy and Riddell, already blooded by the long dark. I can't find much information about what they got up to. I guess leaving biologists out of the mix does make for a pretty dull year. I do know that it was on the way north from the island's relief that year that Phil Law and several of the northbound winterers discussed some mechanism by which to keep track of experienced expeditioners as a reserve of Antarctic talent and knowledge for the nation. This seed of an idea, after passing through the ad hoc committee of Fred Jacker, Jerry Donovan, Dick Thompson, Lem Macy, Frank Hanna and Alan Campbell Drury became the Inari Club. Fred Jacker drafted a constitution and the tradition of a midwinter dinner among the members kicked off and carries on to this day. Macquarie Island winter 1953. Bob Dalton as officer in charge, John Sturrock as medical officer, Peter Tenney as geophysicist, Ray Delland as meteorologist with the awesomely aptly named Max Flutter and the less awesomely named by comparison Merv Christensen as Met Observers, Bob Weber as Dizo, Bob Wilkinson as Cosray Physicist, Scott Little as Radio Supervisor 
and radiophysicist, with Emrys Thompson and Ross Fraser and Brian Feebig as radio operators, Jim Bishop as Cosray physicist, and Jack Field as cook. And again, biologists were left right out, which is my preferred position on the cricket ground. Four pigs and a pregnant cow were carried south for the 1953 winterers. The former to serve as garbage disposal and self-preserving small goods pantry, and the latter to provide milk. The station kitchen didn't generate enough waste to keep the piggery in swill, so kelp and seal meat supplemented the porcine diet, which in turn supplemented the simian diet, as the pigs went to a happy farm interstate once every quarter. The cow calved and the milk supply thus sustained through most of the year. The winterers killed around 60 cats at the north end of the island without putting any noticeable dent in the local population. Given the effect their removal might mean to the rat population, already blamed for the local extinction of several species of small birds, the winterers nixed any proposal for a more concerted and sustained cat eradication program. The goats brought south in 1948 lived on North Head for several years, sustaining themselves well enough, sustaining themselves well enough, but never providing the milk that originally inspired their transportation south. They were culled to end the damage they did to the local vegetation. Scott Little published the findings of a sustained ionospheric investigation at the end of his year at Macquarie, collating and analysing hourly measurements drawn from the previous three years of the altitude of different radio reflectiveness layers as best I can understand it. This led to a greater understanding of high frequency radio transmissions propagation or something. It's not biology and it involves electromagnetic radiation and frequencies and stuff so I'm a bit foggy on what the radio physics program sought to achieve and how well it achieved it. I should really do some reading around the topic as it does seem interesting but there's lots of other stuff to read and the world is so full of interesting things, it's almost a crime. Not as big a crime as leaving biologists out of a wintering party, but I don't get much say in such matters 70 years ago. Peter Tenney published a geophysics report synthesising the past several years of magnetic measurements and seismic data. I've no idea where the Ferris Free Magnetic Hut lay in relation to the bulk of base buildings on the isthmus between Buckles Bay and Hasselborough Bay, yet. But the reading continues. The Kista Dan departed Melbourne on its first Anari commission to resupply the Macquarie Island winterers in December 1953. After unloading the requisite stores to Macquarie Island, it sailed on to unload the team, stores and equipment sent south to establish Mawson Station on the Antarctic continent. It collected herd and Macquarie Island previous winter residents on its way north. Macquarie Island, winter 1954. Ken Campbell as officer in charge, Anatole Gurin as medical officer, former RAF pilot and Battle of Britain veteran and radar development boffin Tom Firmstone chucked his slot in a law degree course to go south as radiophysicist, Keith Stibbs as meteorologist with John Jones and Jack Giles as weather observers, David Johns as Cosray physicist, Cole Robertson as geophysicist, Keith Short as physicist, Harry Whitten as Dezo, Mike Taylor as Cook, Gordon Abs as Radio Observer with Alan Hawker as Radio Operator, 
and absolutely nobody as biologist. A bull land sea cow went south in 1954 to service the cow sent south the previous year, leading to a second calf and more fresh milk. Hurricane strength winds struck Macquarie Island in May 1954 and sustained for 24 hours, bringing down the radio antenna array, but not damaging anything beyond repair at the increasingly well-appointed base. The Macquarie Island station at that point comprised living quarters, rec room, radio hut, ionospherics lab, magnetic huts, powerhouse, stores huts, workshop, seismic and darkroom, infirmary, a rural observation hut, Cosray lab, met office and biology lab. My casarina is full of crows and my hovercraft is full of eels. There's only three of you. I think that counts as attempted murder. A second auroral lab at Herd Point, 20 miles away, afforded simultaneous observations and from these, altitude measurements. A halfway hut at Green Gorge afforded respite if inclement weather hit during a transit. That brings us up to about the same place I got to with Heard Island, and it's time to have a look at Anari as a whole. But I think I'll leave that for another day. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and give Hadley Mission the swerve that he deserves. Mm.